Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by Litbreaker. Litbreaker is an advertising network. It's a way to advertise on multiple websites at once, or you can advertise on one website at a time. It's, uh, it's got versatility. And let me try to explain this even better. Litbreaker is an advertising network for culture vultures, for people who love books, movies, music, art. You can go there and you can advertise on websites that culture vultures tend to frequent. To learn more, go to litbreaker.com. You can advertise on sites like The Nervous Breakdown, The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, The Believer. The list goes on. There's a ton of great sites in the network. And if you want to reach people who go to those sites, look no further. Litbreaker.com. Litbreaker. It's an ad network for people who love books, etc. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is a regularly scheduled program. This is two people in a room with gray carpeting. How are you? What's going on? I'm Brad Listy. It's nice to be with you. My guest today is Steph Cha. Her latest novel is called Beware, Beware. It is part of the Juniper Song mystery series and it's out there now from minotaur books i will be talking with steph momentarily uh before we get started some mail i want to share some mail from some listeners uh the first one comes from a listener named brent it's a regular listener and a a regular writer and uh here's what he has to say dear brad just wanted to say how great episode 317 was with sheila hetty heidi julevitz and leanne shapton you said in the monologue that it was logistically difficult having three guests but I thought it was so cool and completely changed the dynamic of the show. Not that I don't love the dynamic of the show as it usually is. It was a lot of fun to listen to, and the conversation seemed to flow really naturally from topic to topic. And on that note, when you talked about yourself, you were talking about completely different things than you have in the past. And then parenthetically, he says, uh, you know, he's, he's addressing recent criticism of the show that I talk about myself too much which I keep talking about. (laughs) So Brent concludes, uh, one of my favorite things about the show is how you let people in. And I think uh, episode 317's guests 
challenged you in a positive way. Even when you were talking about yourself, it was in the context of their book. And that was really cool. Anyway, Brent. So, uh, Sheila Hetty, Heidi Julebitz and Leanne Shapton, uh, they, they, you know, once again, were my guests on episode 317. They edited a book, uh, called women in clothes. And it's about, uh, exactly what, what it sounds like. It's about, uh, women and fashion and clothes and what they mean and so on and so forth. It's very in-depth. And they all sat in this room with me and we talked about it. So yeah, I was a little nervous about doing the, uh, you know, doing the show from a technological perspective. I only have one other microphone here aside from the one that I use. And then, you know, how do I navigate, uh, you know, talking to three people at once though that actually went uh, quite well because they were very good guests. And, uh, you know, it was also a book. I mean, women in clothes is a book that lends itself well, I think to that sort of round table discussion. And, you know, what I found interesting about doing that show is the fact that I went into it nervous feeling like I wouldn't have anything to say. And then, uh, I, I, I was surprised to learn that I had a lot to say because, you know, clothing is something we all have thoughts about whether we realize it or not. And it's one of those things like money where, you know, we use it every day, but we don't give much thought to it because we use it every day, or at least most of us don't give much thought to it. And by thought, I mean like really deep thought about motive, about, you know, choice, etc. So, uh, fun show. And p- perhaps there'll be an opportunity in the future to do another round table, but it's gotta be the right situation. My neighbor's dog is barking. So the next uh, email that I want to read comes from a listener who calls, uh, himself or herself confused in Santa Cruz. For some reason, I think this is a woman. I have no idea why, you know, not that men can't be confused in Santa Cruz, but I'm just guessing that this is a woman. So Uh, she writes, hi, Brad. I'm a longtime listener and fan in Northern California. I took a break from editing student stories this morning to listen to today's episode and eight minutes in, I had to turn it off because there was no explanation as to what you were talking about. I've been off the grid regarding any sort of news this week and the entire monologue, or at least the first eight minutes were in code, like listening in on a personal conversation with no shared context. Frustrating. I'll catch up in another way, but as someone who loves your show and considers it a venue for literary news and buzz, I would greatly appreciate monologues on such topics, including at least a short synopsis that would open up your topic to all listeners. I'm guessing that I'm not alone in this. While most of your listeners are avid readers or writers in some fashion, I'm sure we're not necessarily plugged into the national literary news per se and consider you a source for that information. Thank you. Confused in Santa Cruz. So that, you know, this is a good point. And I feel, I kind of felt like this after the last episode went live, I worried about it because, you know, for those of you who, uh, you know, haven't heard it, it was episode 318, my conversation with Merritt Tierce in the monologue. Uh, I talked a little bit about last week in literary news. It involved a lot of controversy, a lot of, uh, negative stories, a lot of darkness. And, uh, you know, the way that I handled it in the monologue was to kind of speak elliptically. And then I got into this, uh, hopefully absurdly funny anecdote about me having an email exchange with Emily Gould, who figures into, uh, one of the dark stories from last week, but I didn't get newsy about it. I didn't get into the nitty gritty. I was trying to sort of lighten the mood 
you know, for myself and for everybody else who had been, you know, kind of overwhelmed by, you know, all of the, uh, negativity, but you know, for people who are not aware, for people who are blissfully unaware, there were three, uh, really dark stories unfolding in the literary news media last week. The, uh, like the first of which involved Ed Champion, who uh, a lot of people in the literary community know, uh, he's kind of notorious, you know, kind of notorious as a uh, blogger, a book blogger, a literary critic, uh, and a podcaster. And I don't know, I truly don't know too much about him, but I've learned, uh, via all the media coverage and I didn't realize how widespread the experience of, uh, of being harassed by Ed, uh, is in the world of publishing. But a lot of people have been on the receiving end of his vitriol. And this summer it sort of came to a head when, you know, earlier in, uh, you know, summer of 2014 in June, he wrote an 11,000 word screed, uh, against, uh, Emily Gould, the author, uh, among other females. And it generated a lot of outrage. It was a very, very vicious piece that, uh, many people found very offensive and, you know, they thought it went beyond the pale. It went, you know, it wasn't literary criticism as much as it was personal attack. And, you know, in the aftermath, there was a lot of blowback and Ed Champion threatened to take his own life. And he did not follow through. And then you fast forward to last week, uh, you know, late September and Ed Champion went after a young uh, female author named Pora Chista Kakpur. They, they had been friends. And then I guess, I mean, and this is where it starts to get absurd, but I guess Pora Chista had, uh, had deleted one of Ed's uh, Facebook comments on a post she made on her Facebook wall. And he said something that she felt was too nasty. She deleted it. He received that as like an affront. Censorship. I don't know. He was, he felt betrayed by that, I guess. And then wound up lashing out against her on Twitter and he tried to extort her. He, he said that he was going to release the name of a man who had taken nude photographs of her. If she didn't publicly apologize to him by 11 PM, you can't make this shit up. So, uh, poor Chista then went public with her dismay and it created a huge amount of backlash and once again, uh, when the backlash happened, Ed threatened to take his own life. Uh, apparently his longtime girlfriend left him. And this time, uh, he went up onto the Manhattan bridge and uh, stopped traffic and was, you know, about to take his own life. And, and the police came in and, and someone pulled him off the bridge and, uh, he was committed to a mental hospital. So that's that story. And it's just really ugly and, uh, tragic and sad. And, uh, what, I mean, what can you say? I hope Ed, I hope, I hope that Ed gets well and, uh, I feel for, uh, you know, Emily and, uh, Porachista and everyone else who has kind of, uh, had to be, you know, bear the brunt of that, the abusive behavior. So that's the first story. The second, uh, two stories involve, uh, Stephen Tully Dirks and Tao Lin. Uh, these stories I'm less inclined to, you know, get into too much because they feel less concrete to me. I mean, the basic facts are that Stephen Tully Dirks, uh, was accused of sexual assault by a young woman named Sophia Katz, who wrote an essay on medium.com talking about a trip she had made to New York city. You know, she's a young woman. She had come down to New York city 
Stephen had invited her to stay with him, and then when she stayed with him, he made unwanted sexual advances on her, and uh, it just got ugly. So she wrote this essay. He was outed. I think she called him Stan in the essay. She didn't even name him, but then he was later named on Tumblr or something, and then all you know, all hell broke loose. He wound up shutting down his uh, longtime alt-lit blog called Pop Serial, or he stepped down from it. And by the way, and not to make light in the middle of a dark story, but uh, I want to say it was Gawker, like said something to the effect of like, you know, he retired from public life, <laughs> uh, which seems to be a bit grandiose for like an alt-lit blog, like nothing against alt-lit or blogs, but it'd be, it would sort of be like me saying that I'm going to retire from the world of podcasting. I'm stepping down from public life as the host of a podcast. Like the two things don't square. But anyhow, so uh, a ton of uh, response to that situation and to that story. Like, you know, on social media, in the media, a lot of debate, a lot of ugliness, frankly. A lot of anger. And that story was followed shortly thereafter by uh, E.R. Kennedy, a young man named E.R. Kennedy, formerly a young woman named Ellen Kennedy, coming out with allegations of uh, sexual abuse and emotional abuse by the author Tao Lin. And, uh, you know, Tao dated Ellen when he was 22 and she was 16. And, you know, ER recently, this was like 10 years ago almost, but ER tweeted, I guess, recently that, uh, you know, he had been abusive. Tao wrote a novel called Richard Yates, which uh, seems to detail a lot of this uh, behavior and, and, you know, a lot about this relationship. So, you know, you can't conflate these stories. One is not the other. Uh, in the case of the uh, second two, I, I feel like I know less and I feel less prepared to speculate because, you know, it's, it's such heavy, it's such a heavy charge, you know, and there is a difference between like bad sexual behavior or emotionally abusive behavior and rape. They both suck, but one sucks a lot more. One's a crime that carries with it jail time. And, uh, that's, you know, that's my, I think part of my reticence. The other part of it just comes from how much hostility there is and how quick people are to, uh, go on the attack. I don't want to set anyone off. So I don't know in this, I don't have anything definitive to say, which I think was part of why I was reluctant to get too far into it. It's that, and just not wanting to say something stupid which, uh, believe it or not, <laughs> I have been known to do from time to time. It's very sensitive material. So I hope that explains it, you know, and, uh, that's what I was referring to in episodes, you know, episode 318's monologue. So, uh, thank you for the letters. If you guys want to write to me, the, uh, address is letters at other PPL.com letters at other PPL.com. Uh, I love hearing from you. So feel free to write. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. 
It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. My guest, once again, is Steph Cha. Her latest novel, Beware, Beware, is out there now from Minotaur Books. Uh, Wonderful to have her here on the program, and I hope you guys enjoy this one. Here she is. This is Steph Cha, and her book, once again, is called Beware, Beware. I think... Uh, the PI figure is one that's able to go to a whole lot of different places and it feels organic. Like he has a reason to travel from A to B and then go to a completely different place, interview a completely different kind of person. So I think, I think that has something to do with it. Um, I also think... Yeah, he's the only person who's like actually going to do that much driving aside from like a cab driver. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Which, you know, somebody should write a cab driver noir. I'm sure it's been done. An Uber. No, it's going to be an LA Uber noir. Yeah. The black car, it's perfect. <laughs> and it'll be a little bit obnoxious, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to I do want to read a novel, uh, like where the protagonist is an Uber driver. Actually, there is a novel that is a cab driver noir that um, I haven't read yet, but it's AX Ahmad, and but I think it's about New York cab drivers. Um, yeah, I think uh, the famous book, Mike Davis book, City of Courts, there's a theory in there that Angelinos understand their history through noir. Uh, it's this idea of like sunshine and darkness, right? Where you know you come to sunny California and there's still all this shit, and so it's kind of fun to play with that. I think because there's an expectation of brightness. Yeah, well, no, it's like the perfect weather and the beautiful people and the beaches and you know, but it's a big city and there's you know uh, corrupt police officers and yes. there's really the dark uh, crime and you know. I guess that contrast is sort of irresistible to writers. And uh, the other thing I've heard about Los Angeles, I've heard said about Los Angeles with respect to fiction and with respect to Los Angeles noir in particular, is that it's an easy city to disappear in. Yeah. You know, like you can kind of sort of blend in and people like, what do people do here? You know, how many times (laughs) have you had that conversation? You drive past the cafe at noon and like things packed and. You know, people are just in their T-shirts and what do people do? Does anybody work? Yeah, I do. I I do wonder about that. And also, I mean, here's an example. There's a bar called El Hermosillo in Highland Park, which is a neighborhood that's gentrifying now, but it's been historically uh, mostly Latino neighborhood and it's still like mostly Latino. And you go into this bar and it's a really cool beer bar and Every single person is white. Maybe there's like one or two Asians. I don't know. I've been like the one Asian. And it's like, I know that this neighborhood is not full of white people. Like, where is everybody else? Right. And I think 
I think people disappear uh, maybe sometimes altogether, but a lot of different groups are just invisible to each other. And, and it, I think that's kind of interesting. And, and if you if you try a little bit, you can see everybody. But, you know, uh, most people are not trying. And that's not necessarily a fail, failing. I think it's just how we work. It is odd, though, because Los Angeles, I believe, is the is the most multicultural city per capita or whatever the numbers break down to. There's more cultures represented in Los Angeles or Los Angeles County than anywhere else in the country. And I, w- I was sort of like, you know feeling happy about Los Angeles the other day when I was thinking about, um, I don't know, like compared to some cities, it's, it's, it's pretty tolerant place. Mm -hmm. Um, growing up here as a Korean American, was that your experience? Like, do you have like a fairly good view of Los Angeles in that light or do you see it differently? No, I totally, I love Los Angeles and I, I think I grew up with a lot of Korean Americans, um, I didn't know many in school until high school, but... Uh, you didn't know many Korean Americans until high school? Yeah, not in school. Okay. But I had a church. Okay. And I think... Um, what was the What was the denomination? Or? It was just... It was Methodist. My okay. gra- grandpa's a Methodist minister. He's retired now, but um, I think the church becomes a hub of the Korean American community. And I went, I went in, like, middle school, high school when, like, I wasn't... I had strict parents. I wasn't generally like hanging out with friends outside of school, but I would go to church and I got to hang out with all these people. And most of them were not even there for church. They were just there to see friends. And it became this community hub. Actually, um, I think the Armenian American community is similar. Um, They all go to church. I just went to an Armenian wedding last weekend and it was in this massive Armenian cathedral in Burbank. I was like, where did this come from? This exists. And there were... 300 people at the wedding, almost all of them were Armenian. The couple met at church. I mean, I think I think uh, immigrant groups find their enclaves. Um, and, you know, my experience was that my, my parents both speak fluent English. They immigrated here when they were... My dad was 12 when he came. My mom was 15. Why did they come over? Uh, it was, There was a big wave of Korean immigration in the 70s, I want to say, and... It's just the same immigrant reasons, like opportunity, education. Um, they weren't like fleeing anything. No, really no, no, they weren't. Um, but I think your father wasn't just, an outlaw. No, <laughs> no, no outlaws. And my minister grandpa definitely was not an outlaw. Oh, right, right. <laughs> right. He's a man of God. Yeah, but they came. You know, um, my mom's mom was divorced, which wasn't like a big thing in Korea then. So that might have been part of that. But yeah, so they came and put down roots and now um i really don't have much family in korea actually really like yeah. most of the pe- most of your family has come over yeah they did they at all at least cousin all my cousins are here um and most of them are in the la area actually you go back to korea mm, once every couple years actually i do i'll okay. go with my mom but it's not really going back for me it's like a place that i've become familiar with just because i really like it yeah uh, I have some distant relatives there, but it's not really a visiting thing. Although I had a couple friends that who were teaching there at various points, so I would see them. And okay, yeah, and like when you go back, there's nobody to see. Everyone's over here, so it's just kind yeah. of you're just yeah. there. You're yeah. just traveling essentially. Yeah. But do you feel? I mean, do you feel a connection? I do feel a connection. I mean, when I go over there, it's not like I'm treated like a Korean. You know, my Korean is shitty. It's oh, like it's okay. You can, I can understand. I can, you can understand, but it's harder to speak. Yeah. 
And I can speak, but I get tongue-tied really easily, and it's just like talking to somebody with the third grade level I'm that way in understanding English. of the language. So yeah, I don't. It it's not entirely like I'm at home or anything, but I I I, I really do love it. And um, yeah, I think part of it is like the food, the atmosphere. It just makes sense to me. K-pop, the culture. It's I mean, it's yeah, an interesting culture. Yeah, I actually I went through. A huge K-pop phase when I was in sixth grade, seventh grade. Yeah. And so whenever I hear those songs, I just am blasted with nostalgia. Yeah, I was just yeah, I was I was reading about. I forget what I was. Re- I got a book. There's a book sitting over here. I forget what it's called. Hang oh, on. I know what book you're talking about. What is it? Korea. Korean Cool. The Birth of Korean Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That guy yeah. came my way. So it's interesting how like uh, popular that's become worldwide. Yeah. So, growing up, you said you didn't meet other Korean Americans until you were in junior high at church. No, no, or I met school, them in, I mean. yeah, in okay. school. But yeah. So, where were you living that you weren't interacting with other Korean Americans all that much? Uh, Encino. Okay. <laughs> so, not a huge Korean American population? No. It's mostly just, what, whiteies? And... Yeah, I think so. Okay. I think it's a heavily Jewish neighborhood, I want right. to say. I don't know. You know what? I've never, I've never been to Encino. I've lived Where's... here for... I've lived here for, you know, 13 I mean, it's, years. it's suburbia. Okay. There's no real reason to go over there. I mean, I go over there because my parents are still there. It's nice. Yeah. It's no, nice it's really nice. And I go and I hang out. Um, but, you know, my husband and I tried to get dinner at a gastropub once at 9 o'clock, and the kitchen was closed. Oh, really? <laughs> so, That's not normal. you know, it's not, it's not a place where you'd hang out if you didn't have a special reason to hang out there. Okay. But a nice place to grow up. Safe place. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Okay. So, in growing up, your parents were strict. Yeah. Um, not letting what you couldn't go play at a friend's house. I mean, I could, but I remember there was a rule that I could have. I could go to sleepovers only if it was a birthday. Okay. And I mean, I didn't have that many friends. I had like five friends, maybe, who would invite me to sleepovers on a birthday. And they didn't always have sleepover birthdays, so it's like I slept over at a friend's house like a few times a year. I'm scared of that as a parent. I have a daughter, and I'm like, oh yeah, I gotta really know the parents. Plus, like she's gonna sleep somewhere else. Like I'm not ready for that yet. Yeah, no, that makes sense. But it was very frustrating, and I, I had a sense that other parents were not as strict. Yeah. Um, Are you and- an only child? No, I have actually. I didn't mean to point at you when I said <laughs> accusatorily. <laughs> Do I give off only child? No. <laughs> Uh, I have two younger brothers. Um, one is actually 17. Uh, and the 17-year-old has a completely different experience from me. Because he's a boy or because he's the youngest? Because he's the youngest. Yeah. Although, I think partly because he's a boy. Plus, um, like, you went, to St- what, you went to Stanford and Yale? Yeah. He's got a lot to live up to. Or maybe your parents are like, at least we, you know, our daughter's a shining star. <laughs> She's publishing books. She's got an Ivy League education. They, um, well, I think they still expect excellence from him. But they're not, like, on the assembly line making sure that happens. They're, he is a very driven person. He's kind of a 40-year-old man. I think that's part of being completely neglected in many ways <laughs> as the third child. But but also, but like, this thing about like, expecting excellence and being a good student, I mean, that is something that's often associated with, like, Asian-American. Yes. Like, culturally, in Korean-American culture, like, how much of that is emphasized that's, like... That would be different than, say, like, you know, my parents or something. Like, is it something that's really acute? It is. I mean, that has been my experience. And, you know, I kind of bristle at the model minority stereotypes. But I, there is some truth to the fact that, like, education is, like, very valued in the Korean American community. 
I think part of it is a little bit of the whole competitive thing. Because I think it's because we're a large but still compact community, if that makes sense. Like, there are a lot of us enough to compete with each other, but small enough that everyone knows if, you know, so-and-so's kid (laughs) did, you know. Right. Like, got drunk and hit someone with a car, or so-and-so's kid uh, is going to Harvard Med. Like, you kind of hear these stories. Um, so I think part of it is that competitiveness, the the keeping up with the Joneses, but they're like a million, you know. Yeah. So, <laughs> Not okay. a million, but... Your parents strict? I mean, they were... Like, how, like were they, how, as in terms of enforcing this, or is this mostly, do you feel like it was mostly just like innate self? No, I was... I was, um, I grew up just with a finger in my back, like all the way until college. And I actually did okay under that regime. Like I didn't rebel. It's a regime. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just the fact that you're characterizing it as a regime. It's interesting. And I I have a, it's actually, and it's mostly my mom. My dad expected the results, but my mom was the one who was kind of responsible for getting me to things and... So uh, tell me what to do, you know, because as you know, you went to Stanford, I mean, it must have worked. You went to Stanford and Yale. So you you like, you like had to do your homework. Did you have to do extra homework? Yeah. I mean, I think, and I think this worked on me because I do well under pressure and because I don't put that much pressure on myself. I actually am at base level, an extremely undisciplined person. So I think this worked well for me because I had outside motivation, basically my mom breathing down my back. Breathing down my neck. <laughs> the regime was breathing on me, basically. Um, but yeah, I had, let's see, I went to, and I went to private school and that was like a thing that nobody ever questioned. I was just stuck in private school. Um, and what do you mean nobody ever questioned it? Just like... I think there was never any idea that I would go to a public school. Okay. And I think part of it is where we lived and part of it is just like my parents wanted to like not take any risks and just put me in private school. What, um, do, what do your folks do? My dad uh, runs like a commercial real estate, like leasing office space. Right. And my mom is a housewife. Okay. So she was really bearing down. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that think, was her job. You think, are you, if you become a mother, you think you'll do the same thing or do you think you would take a different approach? No, I mean, I think it'll, I think I'll have to see what the kid is like. And what the kid can handle. Like, her approach was different with both of my brothers. I mean, this set, one one in the middle is just a lot more sensitive than I am. Are any of the kids screw-ups? Like, there's got to be one out of three. <laughs> I mean, the one in the middle, he's not a screw-up. But he, <laughs> he, you know, he, like, he has dropped out of college and, you know, is still, like, figuring his life out. Right. Um, but, no, I wouldn't call him a screw-up. Well, I know. But, just, he's, but, but, he, but he is not, like, he's not somebody who, like studied really hard and went to top school no okay um see i can empathize with him <laughs> it's my it's my tribe right there so yeah. uh okay so you uh grow up you're going to these like what uh private schools in los angeles good experience yeah i had a great experience and i actually uh the school the school i went to was a highly gifted school and it was like what was it merman Okay. Uh, what does that mean? High like it means you were a special talent. And... It means we were IQ tested. In. Oh, okay. <laughs> Which is ridiculous. Like, what does IQ test mean when you well, have like a bunch of? What was your IQ of... when as a child? I was one fifty five. Holy shit! That's good IQ. That's, good. <laughs> That's like genius level. One forty is genius level. One forty was the cutoff for the school. Okay. 
But you beat it handily. You know, I don't know what that exactly means, right? Because people have different levels of aptitude, and like IQ tests are generally suspect. I do think that the crop of kids was smarter than your average at your average school, but um, it was yeah, it was a school for nerds, and uh, it was it was it was great. Like I really liked it. Um, I was the worst athlete at this school, which is well, you can't be a genius at everything. You can't (laughs) come on. That would just be unfair if you were also a gifted athlete. Um, like when you say like, you know, high IQ gifted school or whatever, uh, like, were you testing high on math? Like, are you good at language and math and science? Is it the whole package? Or are you one of these people who's like extremely strong in languages, but maybe not quite as strong in the math and science department? I'm good at languages and math. Those were kind of the two things I was best at growing up and all the way through high school. Um, you do calculus. Not anymore. I mean, back in the day. Yeah, could... back in the day. I did. Okay. Actually, I, w- I did math counts. I did various competitions. And I, you know, was on the high track math. And um, I never really liked it that much. Uh, I was good at it. I, but do, I do find I found though, it dry. Well, I, but I find like talking to writers, there, there are some. It's like a minority of the people that I've spoken with. But. There are some writers who have a really strong mathematical mind, and that mathematical mind serves their their writing. Like yeah. I, I feel like it informs the way they build their books. No, I think that makes sense. I mean, it's an understanding of structure and how the world works in right. a pretty building block way. Well, so. we were talking about Ben Laurie, yeah. who is a buddy of both of ours uh, here in Los Angeles, and I had him on the show, and I think we were talking about something similar and he's got an almost mathematical approach to how he plots yeah, his stories. Yeah, like diagrams of stories. Exactly. Yeah. Like that would—that is something that probably would never occur to me. No, that's like a little too genius level for me. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, okay, so you leave this—you uh, know—this gifted and talented school. You go to another private school, or you stay there the whole yeah. time. Yeah. Okay. And oh, oh, the reason I brought up the private school thing was that you asked if I had like other things going on. My—I I also had supplemental math, like just on this side. I did Kumon. Which, do you know what that is? I have no idea. Okay, if you go around town and you see signs for Kumon. Okay. Um, How do you spell that? K-U-M-O-N. Okay. It's a math center where you, it's an, it's extracurricular math. You go and they give you workbooks and you do math and you do like five sheets a day. And this was just my nightmare until I was maybe 12. Uh, at which point, for some reason, my mom said, okay, you can stop. Uh but I, I I did that like every day, and it was the 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 um, logo for Kumon is actually a sad kid. It's a it's like the O is like a smiley face you would think, except it's like two dots and a line. Yeah, <laughs> just like a just like a kid who's completely like drained of all. Yeah, it's like happiness. parents, if you want your child to look like this because she's studying so hard, then come here. Well, you know, it's an interesting it's an interesting debate. When it comes to parenthood and education and, you know, I'm right in the thick of all that. And like, there's the whole like tiger mom thing and how, how hard are you supposed to be on your children? And is there a payoff? And, you know, the tiger mom, by the way, was my professor in law school. No shit. <laughs> what do you I mean? You know, where do you fall on that? I mean, I, I think there's something to it. You know, you push your kids a little bit and it can be good for them and yeah. they, they can wind up reaping rewards. You push or they can just completely collapse. Right. You push them too hard and they're like, they're going to resent you. And I guess you just have to read the individual child and hope that you have a good yeah, sense. I think that's where I fall. I mean, I don't resent my childhood. There are certain things I would 
have been like, mom, you can relax. I'm going to turn out okay. But like... <laughs> You're like, I got this. I got the kumon, mom. Yeah, I can like sleep over at my friend's house. She was really nervous that we would like... She's like, girls get into stupid things. Like, you might call boys. And I was like, mom, no, we were just like... They didn't want you to date. <laughs> oh, no. No, they didn't until pretty late. Um, but not that that was really... I didn't have like boys knocking on my door all the time trying to get my number. No. Come on. You're attractive. <laughs> You didn't have that in high school? Maybe. No, not at all. Well, they're probably scared of your mom. No, uh, when I was in high school, I like, you know, I, I, I wore sweatpants to school. I had like a blanket because I slept in my car in the morning <laughs> <laughs> really? for like half an hour. Yeah, I would get to the school uh, really early so that I could get... Uh, I could park in my spot without other cars being there because I was a terrible, terrible driver, which is like another one of those stereotypes that right. I'm constantly <laughs> confirming. And I hate it. I hate it. But when I was 16, I was like the worst driver anyone's ever seen. Yeah. Uh, Where does that even come from that Asians I are don't bad know. drivers? I, I actually have a theory about this, that we have a, we, um, that, you know, Korean society is like fairly patriarchal. And so driving is a skill that kind of codes male. And, you know, my dad taught my brothers to drive, like, very hands-on. He never did that with me. Yeah. Um, I always drive whenever my family, like, my wife and I go somewhere. But I'm a, I am mean, I, dri- I like to drive when I go somewhere with anyone. I could be in the car with, like, uh, the winner of the Indy 500 and I would have to <laughs> drive. Because I like to be at the... I, I feel like if I'm at the wheel, I know that there's going to be a good driver. Yeah. Watching. No, I don't... Yeah, I don't... I don't mind driving. But when I was... So when I was in high school, I would get there really early because... The spots were really narrow, yeah. and so I was really worried about hitting the people next to me. But then I and I'd had to drop off my brother at the bus stop early anyway, so I just went straight. But that meant I had half an hour before school started, and so I would nap in my car and I had a blanket. But then it would be seven o'clock. Or, no, not seven. When does school start? When does high school start? Like eight, it's eight o'clock, seven thirty. I don't like know, that. something yeah. crazy. Um, too early. Yeah, way too early, and I would get out of my car and it, I would, it would feel too cold to transition from napping. So I would take my blanket in and look like a homeless person. So yeah, that's like what I was like. At well, that's not, but th- that's I was un- not dating. That's unusual. <laughs> that, Cause like, I feel like a lot of teenage adolescent girls, like, you know, they're, I mean, I remember my sister, my older sister, when we were growing up, like up early at the crack of dawn to like blow dry her hair and put on all this makeup and do all that. You weren't doing that. No. I mean, that's. I think that kind of shows, in, in a way, it shows some confidence that like he didn't give a shit. You weren't going to play those games, no. Yeah, I don't think it was that. I mean, it's not like I was. A, I wasn't a confident teenager. I always felt like I was kind of a loser. Uh, Everybody who's a teenager feels like they're a loser. I, is that true? I, and, <laughs> but, then but then there's the teenagers who have this bravado. But show me a 16 year old who thinks like I got it. I got. It. I mean, hmm. pro- maybe outwardly, but inward, inwardly, I think when we're teenagers, we all feel like, okay, you know. I mean, right? Yeah. That's the teen experience. <laughs> but, you know, the fact that you, um, you're you wearing sweatpants, you're, I mean, you're walking in, like, caped, essentially? Yeah, I actually had somebody come up to me uh, when we were all finding out about colleges. Somebody I'd never met before asked, where are you going to school? And I said I was going to Stanford. She's like, oh, thank God you're not going to the East Coast. Why? Because <laughs> I'm, like, wearing a blanket in California. Oh, yeah, <laughs> we'll see in California, though, you can dress down a little bit more. I think yeah. if you're in on the East Coast, people expect, a, like, maybe a higher level of uh, fashion or something. I think just the weather. Oh, that, too. Yeah. I hated the East Coast, by the way. You did? I am you're not. A West Coast girl. Yeah. Okay. What did part you, of it is What water. did you know? Because you went to Yale afterwards? Yeah. Right. I went, I went uh, 
Yeah, I went for law school. So I lived there for three years. And you hated it. And I just hated it. Why? It was miserable. I hated the weather. There was one winter, my second year, where I got pretty depressed for a couple months because, I mean, some, like, family shit had happened, but, like... What happened? It was... My uncle, uh, who was my favorite uncle, we were really close, like, turned out to have been, like, this dickhead who'd been cheating on his wife for years and... So, I mean, it was just one of those things where, like, that really upset me, but I'd already been upset because winter had been going on for five months. Yeah. And then it went on for, like, another two months, Uh and I was just like, this is bullshit. Like, (laughs) I can't believe this, and I have to live here another year. Like, I just want to, like, never leave my house again. Yeah. The winter, you know, it can do that. I mean, I grew up in it, but... um... Do you feel, is that the only time you've ever had a depressive episode or do you feel like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not generally a depressed person. And that was very situational. Yeah. I mean, I like I have or seasonal. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I have, you know, friends and relatives who struggle with depression and I like, I can't pretend to understand that. That's like a completely different thing. But I mean, yeah, I've been sad. Sure. I've definitely been sad. But never like, I can't get out of bed. No. Right? Never like, the fun things aren't fun sad. Yeah. No. Never like, I can't eat. Or... Yeah, no. Yeah. No. That's a different, that's like a different uh, level. Yeah. It's not like the chemicals in my brain are doing things and like just fucking with me for the fun of it. Right. It's more like something happened or everything is gray. Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, that's a good reason to be depressed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you like Stanford? I love Stanford, yeah. Stanford Stanford seems like the, I mean, what a great place to go to school. It was, it was pretty good, yeah. And so, and you studied there, were you thinking of being a writer at that age, or was it something that was in the back of your mind and kind of shelved, or? Back of my mind, I would say. I took a class on American detective fiction my freshman year, and that's when I read, like, the big noir people. I read, I read Chandler Hammett, um, mostly, and even then I thought it would be cool if there were a Korean American version of a Chandler novel, um, because well, I'm from LA. Okay. And so it had been in my mind that that should exist. And, but like, why beyond like you're from LA, obviously there's a big Korean American presence here. There's Korea for people who don't know Los Angeles, there's an entire section of the city called Koreatown. Yeah. Which is massive, massive. And so, um, but is there, is there, are there other reasons beyond just those basic facts that you thought like there should be a Korean American noir heroin you know what i'm saying like i thought that uh chandler would be fun to play with because he's such a white dude <laughs> like he is so white and yeah. so duty like well and the city used to be less multicultural yeah although i mean there were you know he'd have like a mexican in the book and he'd call him the mexican or yeah you know i think there was in one book there was a native american man smoking pot in a car like <laughs> nobody with names and yeah um so i thought it would be fun to write a <clears throat> new la noir that had more of the diversity in present day la and i hadn't really seen anything about the koreatown experience or the Korean American experience in LA, which is a very specific thing that is still recognizable to a lot of people. Um, so yeah, I had this idea that, um, someone should write that. And I had wanted to be a writer when I was a kid, but that was kind of my version of wanting to be an astronaut or a ballerina. Right. Um, it was not something that I thought people could actually do. I hear that a lot. Yeah. I mean, I think, and now I know other writers, um, and now I realize, like, oh, you don't have to be a superhuman. You can just write a book. You can just sit down. 
you can discipline yourself and like write 80,000 words. But I think it's very daunting to see if, if all you see of writers is just the hardcovers in a store. Like that doesn't seem like a person actually did that. Um, well, or think, if it I, is a person, it's like a very gifted person. Well, yeah. I mean, I think if you fall in love with books or, or certain books, it's easy to kind of in your mind mythologize the person who yeah. wrote these things and to create, you know, who created this? They yeah. must be some sort of magician. Exactly. And I didn't know anybody who was a fiction writer, really. I mean, because I didn't, I didn't major in creative writing. I did English, but I did the literature emphasis. So I took one uh one fiction writing class I think my sophomore year and that was it um and then I didn't write again until law school um once you were like oh god I'm gonna be a lawyer yeah that's exactly <laughs> what happened yeah, I've heard that before too <laughs> uh in fact we were talking about David Connerly now he's still an attorney but I mean you know well but, he likes it though. he does he does but that, I think I've talked to other people who did law school and that was sort of the impetus to like get down to business with, yeah. with regard to like the creative writing so you like you know you have this English degree in, as a, a Stanford undergrad, and then you go to Yale Law School. Um, all the way along, you, you're thinking I'm going to be a lawyer. Yeah, I or guess I want this, I want this I education thinking... as a backup just in case. Yeah, I, yeah. But I wasn't thinking I'm going to go to law school and then be a writer. That's definitely not what I was thinking. I was kind of, you know, I think what happens to a lot of people, especially the people who go straight through from college to law school, is that you are a humanities major, and there are no jobs. Or you have to look really hard to find a job, but you could take the LSAT and see how you do. And if you do well enough, you can go to like a top law school or a decent law school. And at the end of that, you will probably have a job. You know, it might not be your favorite job, but it's secure. So I think uh, a lot of risk averse people who have humanities backgrounds end up in law school just for that reason. And it's not like I showed up the first day of law school and was like, I am 100% going to be a lawyer. I'm going to do this big. I didn't have, like, any real conception of what my future would look like. I was just doing the next thing, you know, on this path. And that's like, you know, when when you, when you I, I, I grew up first, you know, 17 years of my life with just my mom telling me what to do. Right. And I would just, like, study and study, and I'd, like, do well, and I'd do the next thing, and I'd do the next thing. And I went to college, and then the next thing was law school. And after that, I was just like, oh, I'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah. And, but you were, did you ever have like a dark night of the soul where you're like, I hate the law. I don't want to be a lawyer. What am I doing? Or was it always just like, you know what? I'll get through this. I'll get the degree. It's a good thing to have in my back pocket. And then once I'm done and my mom's happy, <laughs> uh, I'm going to go start working on fiction or find something that I actually really am passionate about. Yeah. It was, it was, it was more, it was like definitely gradual. Um, I summered, I, I was a summer associate at a big law firm, my 1L summer. New York? LA. Oh, out in Los Angeles. Yeah. Okay. And it's just a terrible place. Like, I just hated it. And they didn't make us do anything. Like, they didn't make us do any work. They just took us out to, like, nice dinners and, you know, like, we went on a wine tasting thing. We went on a, we went, they took us on a hike in Switzerland. Are you shitting me? This was 2008. Are they courting before. you? Is this like a... Is this yeah. Like... Oh, yeah. That's totally... The summer associate program at big law firms is a, a courtship. It has changed since 2008. So I did a summer in 2009 in New York, and it's completely different. People are stressed out. But yeah, we didn't have to do like... They took you on a anywhere. hike like in... Like, in Switzerland, yeah. Up in the Ad Ar you know, Adirondacks instead of Switzerland. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. After the crash, it was like, we're going to take you on a hike in Central Park. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was pretty awesome. But... Um, you know, it was a terrible place. Uh, 
Well, but and like, wait, part gotta, of it I was stop you. I got to stop you. Uh, when it when it comes to, you know, you're you're a Yale Law School student, so obviously you're going to be sought after as like a you know a young lawyer. I'm imagining firms are looking for Yale Law graduates. Yeah. So is it one of those things where they were kind of courting you guys and making it like we want you to be here? Just so they could like sign you up and then you would have like the punishing like junior. That's exactly that's exactly the system. But everyone knows that going in. And part of so part of it was that I saw all these associates who were just overworked like crazy. But that wasn't even what totally turned me off. It was like a litigation firm and it was really fratty. And like I think like the sexual harassment was just crazy. Did you did you experience it? Yeah. What happened? Um a few different th- and my first weekend there we went on a firm like we did the wine tasting and at the end of the day there was a party at an associate's house it's like third year associate you know i'm like 20 t- 22 years old at this point this third year associate like tried to make out with me at this party and i was like no, no this is too weird yeah uh and but i but like you know that's like a mild thing uh on the hike one of the the hiring partner um, took us all to Hooters. What? Yeah, he took us all in to Hooters. Yeah, there's a Hooters in Switzerland. There's a Hooters in Switzerland. Oh it's actually God. the only Hooters I've ever been to. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe they've exported that to Switzerland. <laughs> yeah, so he took us to the Hooters. Uh, like bought us a bunch of tequila shots. You know, this is like a sixty year old dude, and it was like fun. Whatever. There's like, you know, there was a lot of. There was a lot of fun between partners and associates. You know, it wasn't like a strictly professional environment, which like has its benefits. It's fun, I guess. But then like the downside is like people aren't professional and they will like sometimes grope you. Right. Oh so, so he, this, this partner takes us to a, a discotheque afterwards. And, you know, I didn't even get the worst of it. There was another girl who he was following around. He had his arms around her she like lost him for a bit and he was going around asking like where's this girl like where'd she go was he tanked maybe i don't know i mean not that that's an excuse but no no but it's just i'm just trying to like yeah probably i don't know or he he i think he did like the whole like avuncular thing but it was gross and you know i was I, i was sitting at the bar talking to a friend and he came up to he was doing the rounds kind of talking to everyone and the whole time he's talking to me he has his hand like on my thigh and I'm wearing a skirt, so it's like just on my skin. And I'm like, uh, what? And like, that the, but by the way, like, it was it was it was a huge red flag at Hooters. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? But we get back to the states, and nobody says anything about this happening, and nobody can really complain because he's a hiring partner. Yeah, and it's like, and I was just like, I'm not gonna work here. This no. is ridiculous. Well, this is like, insane. What is it about? And then obviously, you know, I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush because I know there are many uh, companies and uh, business environments that are run by you know men for the most part that are not this unhealthy but what is it about like you, you hear about this kind of fratty boy misbehaving and just like cheesy you know it's not even like i mean hooters like this guy's an attorney like i know have some class you know? I know. If, you're, if you're gonna act like a jackass like take <laughs> take some people somewhere decent you're in switzerland and you go to hooters like you know what i'm saying but like what is it about men why are men constantly doing this especially when you get a bunch of men together and there's a lot of money you know like you're at goldman sachs and you read these stories about the way things are and you know obviously it's not necessarily everybody who's there but there's enough people in the banking business that are doing this that you're like yeah this is just uh like shockingly 
gross. <laughs> yeah, no, there was a story uh, that went kind of viral yesterday or a couple days ago about this hedge fund manager who groped a bartender, and she wrote an open letter. She found his name on his credit card statement, like wrote an open letter to him, posted a picture. Good. <laughs> and yeah, it was amazing. Right. It's so satisfying. And then when he found out about it, his response was, <laughs> he leads with, I've groped plenty of asses, but I never groped hers. <laughs> it's like, that's your opener? Like, that's... No. <laughs> oh, my God. Like, at that point, do I believe that she made it up? No, that's yeah. crazy. So, well, and like, like, like another thing that comes to mind, uh, particularly in light of the fact that you were at Yale, um, is that I was just reading not too long ago that uh, like an unbelievable percentage uh, I think it, they were talking about Harvard, but it could probably be any of these Ivy Leagues, is that like a, a really shockingly large percentage of students go straight from Harvard into the investment banking world. Yes. It's like 60%. Yeah. It's like this I, pipeline of people going into that and culture. And consulting is yeah. the other one. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's called the brain drain, yeah. actually, because uh, this is a thing. Um, and I think, it's, I think it's like the same reason I applied to law school, too, though. It's that... You are at this elite school and you don't know what to do next, but there are like these recruiters on campus and, oh, they're going to pay you a lot of money if you do this thing. And it's like, oh, you can just like sign up and do this thing. So why not? Like, what else are you going to do? You're going to like find your own job? No. So that I think that's what ended up happening. What ends up happening. I think there is some judgment attached to it. Um, uh, my husband went to Yale undergrad and he said that like it was kind of touchy when people when people like went into consulting, like people would be embarrassed about it. Uh, what does that mean? You go into consulting. You're just consulting somebody. Yeah, you work for one of these big firms, and okay. you spend most of your week traveling, talking to I don't know whoever needs to. They need help. Consult like a, you. A business, yeah. a business needs help, yeah, and they need yeah. your brain, yeah, to figure out a problem. And I think a lot of people do this too, because like this is one of the things that if I looked for it, like I could have done as an English major. Um, so I think it's, yeah, I think you they, didn't go that route. You're not no. part of the brain drain. No. So when did you, okay, so you get out of law school and then what? How do you get to where you're writing books? So I started writing my first book in law school. It was actually the summer when I was working at that terrible place because I was like, I might <laughs> I as I started well. writing it in Hooters, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I pulled out my notebook. Went on to my the napkin. Bathroom. Yeah, on my Hooters yeah. napkin. <laughs> began my literary career. It was It was shortly after that, I think, or maybe shortly before, but... Um, yeah, I just, I started writing because I figured, well, if I'm not going to do law, like I might as well pursue the thing that I thought I might pursue. And so I just started writing. Um, and at first it was kind of for fun and then, and then it got longer and then it got longer. And, you know, once you write a whole book, I mean, I'm sure you've had this experience. It's like, well, I got to do something with it. I can't just like throw it away or if I'm going to throw it away I should like do that for a good reason um so I wrote the first draft between my second and third years of law school and the second half of my my second semester of my third year I started looking for agents okay um and uh I mean at first I had this like fantasy that I would start shopping for agents and I'd have a book deal by the time I graduated and obviously that did not happen but I did meet my agent. I, I was still in New Haven when I met my agent in New York. How did you meet um, your agent? I queried him. I did the cold queries. I did the whole slush pile thing. 
And he was interested in my book, but not so much that he wanted to sign me. He wanted to see some major edits first. So that took a long time. Um, good notes? Very good notes. Okay. Like, he is an excellent editor. And actually, I had a few agents who asked for manuscripts who rejected it for the same reasons that he gave me edits. Hmm. What um, were they? Do you remember? I mean, is there anything you can talk yeah, about? Yeah, I mean... grasp not having read the initial? Yeah, I can just say that I um, had originally envisioned this project as... Um, more of a direct Chandler riff. You know, I like the idea of Marlowe as this man without a past. And it turns out that just does not work with an amateur detective. And I was like, oh, right. But I needed people to tell me that. And so I layered in this whole backstory and it became a much richer novel uh, because of it. And actually, when I had finished my edits for my agent and he still like wasn't responding because he had actual clients who he was <laughs> who were making making him <laughs> who money. he was beholden to yeah. so um when i had a draft that i thought was much stronger i queried again and i got more bites and that's when i went back to my current agent and what's said, his name uh ethan bassoff where's he at he's at lmq lippincott massey mcculkin okay and, how, and like you just called like did you look did he represent writers that you were admiring or something is that how you did it or no I mean, he was at Inkwell at the time, which is just a big agency. And I just, I don't even think I queried him. I queried someone else at the agency. And it got uh, to him. And it got to him. Okay. Um, and I mean, I queried like at least 60 places. So I did, I did at the time, like have a spreadsheet and I kind of looked at, well, who would be a good fit for me? But I don't remember in retrospect, like what exactly made me think that each place would work. I'm just impressed that you had a spreadsheet. Oh friend. yeah. No, I have, <laughs> it's like. Yeah, it's like one of the only spreadsheets I've ever made. Like oh. that, and I made a spreadsheet for my wedding. You did? Okay. <laughs> Who's going to make just the like cut? Just like too many, it's just like too many pieces. Yeah. It's, like, it's, actually, it's hard to keep track of. If you're doing that many queries, because there's some, you know, I queried a lot of people when I was out looking for an agent, and you read some things, and it's like you shouldn't query too many at once. Obviously, you shouldn't query more than one agent at the same agency, because they yeah. get both. Yeah, yeah, you, know, yeah. you don't want to turn them against one another in terms of uh, trying to pursue you or whatever, but... Oh, yeah, when they're fighting for my <laughs> Well, you know. Or I think it's just bad yeah, form. Yeah, no, it is bad it's form. It's just bad form. So uh, it would be nice to be fought over. There. But, uh, you know, it does get hard to keep track of it all. Yeah. It's not no, a bad it was, approach. Yeah. And, and, I, and, like, did you hear back and who asked for what? And yeah. it can be easy to And I could track. be like, yeah, here's the here's when I queried them. Here's when I heard back. Here's the no. Here's the no. Here's the no. Here's the no. Here's the well, like. Send me something else. Well, and the thing too I want to talk about is getting notes because this is a part of it that um, it can be confusing for writers or annoying or both. And I think that like you know my experience has been when somebody gives a good note, it's so self-evident. Yeah. And the justification for the note is either contained within the note itself or it becomes obvious the minute the minute they say it or the person who's giving the note can articulate it to you and sometimes people get notes or give notes uh and the notes are bad <laughs> it might just be their opinion and oh i think that you should change this or i didn't yeah. like this and like that's not a note yeah you know? i got I, I got bad i got bad notes from another agent who was interested in representing me um and uh he just, he, you know, he was like, he represented a lot more directly commercial fiction. So he was like, well, why don't we make the ending like happier? And why don't we make this person not so bad? And why don't we make this person more of a love interest? And I was like, do you like my book? Right. <laughs> well, but that, you know, I mean, I've been through that. It's like, did you even read the thing? And then be like, why don't we make the, why don't we make the investigator an old white man? <laughs> you know, it's like, well, wait a minute. What are you trying to write here? And uh, I, that's a good question. 
you know, it's a, 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 I think maybe if you put them on a sodium pentothal, they would say no. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your compelling reason for wanting to represent this? Um, well, that's good, though. You've, it sounds like you found a good agent. And then once you made those changes, um, what about the sales process? So we worked together. So we signed, we finally signed on my 25th birthday. Huh? It was a great 25th birthday. Yeah, that's great. Um, and we spent another three months or so, or maybe four months editing, just between me and my agent. He wanted it to be in tip-top shape by the time we sent out. He said the way he operates is that he'll have a short list of editors he's interested in, but he won't approach them until the book is, in his eyes, like flawless. Uh, or close to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said because of that, he really rarely has a book that doesn't sell to somebody. Um, and so we worked on this book and we had it finished. And uh, he said, we should hear something in a couple of weeks. And I was like, I'm like okay, that's, that's a lie. But thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for sweetly lying to me. Yeah. I was like, that's. Okay, I'll just count that as, as optimistic. And we heard back in two weeks uh, from an editor at Minotaur. And I talked to her about the book. And she had a couple notes, too. It was much less extensive than anything I'd done before. It was a really easy edit. Um, and the idea was that she would... She really liked the book, and she wanted to push it in-house. She needed me to address a few things so that she could have... Um, my suggestions combined with the book and that could be the package to go to the other people in the house. So I basically wrote a memo on like what I would change based on our conversation. And she was like, okay, that, that works. I'll just like use this. And so she went and got the book through pretty quickly. And then she came back and was like, okay, like let's, let's make this official. And then, um, you just, you see that like memo you wrote, just do that. Uh, so it was all pretty painless once I got there. Was it a, was it a multi book deal or was it just one? It was just one. It um, was. Uh, it With was, an option on the second. Yeah, it was like right of first. Refusal. Like, yeah, I yeah, think yeah. it was like first look or whatever on the second. And so yeah, uh, each of my books, I, I'm I'm on contract for my third one, but each one has been individual. And and but you're writing a series with the same protagonist. Yeah. So with Juniper Song. Yeah. Okay, so that's and that's very um, of the genre or like of the noir. You know, to have your private investigator recur across many. Oh books. yeah, you getting tired of her? It's challenging. I'm not tired of her. I think she's a good character. Uh, but I, I, you know, I, it's I don't want to run into the murder she wrote problem, where it's like, what's that? Where it's like, why is this woman just like, why does she have corpses trailing her? <laughs> like, like no one should let her stay at their hotel because like <laughs> right. someone's gonna die. She should be quarantined. Yeah. yeah. So it's, I mean, so it's, I, I don't want to run into the problem where like realistically if this person existed she'd be like a gawker celebrity or something you know people would be like why is this like 20 something private eye like running into every murder in the city like that right. is a, that is interesting um and the other thing is that there are all these side characters with their own stories and i'm starting to get to the point where i feel a little bit bogged down by that um because i feel like i have to deal with them and if i don't then i'm gonna feel like ugh and I, I and I also feel like the emotional weight of prior novels should carry into the ones I'm working on. And at some point, I think I'm gonna have to stop beating up on her. Like, is it? Could it be just a trilogy? Yeah, I mean, it could be. I or, mean, I don't have an idea for a fourth yet, so we'll see what happens. And, and what about that. a book like this? Because these books, I mean, and I don't mean to oversimplify, but I think with um, you know noir, detective fiction, genre fiction, like the the 
you know, the old thought is that these are more plot heavy. Yeah. And so do you have to do outlining like when you're building up a storyline for this character and do you sit there and meticulously plot it out or is it something you do more intuitively? I do it more intuitively. I do it kind of on the go. The first book, I really did it that way because I, ha- I have an idea for a beginning and an end. And the end was an emotional end. It wasn't a plot end. Um, and I needed to get her there. So I had, and I had a few signposts along the way, but I wanted, since it was an amateur detective story, I wanted her to kind of stumble along and like have to solve problems as like I would solve the problem or any civilian would. It had to be recognizable. Now, now that she's a private detective, it's like, okay, she can be a little smarter and more have access to more tools than that. But, um, the, so the first one, I wrote the full manuscript before shopping it. The second one, I wrote 100 pages. And the third one, I wrote a pitch. And so the less that I've sold it on, the more I've had to outline because I needed to be like, well, this is what's going to happen next. Right. So now I have like a skeleton of the novel, but I'm really doing it just scene by scene. Um, and yeah, I mean, and so I actually don't read for plot as much. I mean, plot is important to me, but like, that's not primary. Um, and so I, I mean, I try to write good plots, but that's not the main thing I'm trying to do. I try to like suss out themes and blah, 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 have good characters. Um, but yeah, it's like, I, I have things that I want to explore and I'll try to bend the plot to them if possible, and if then, that feels organic. Do you have like a really uh, strong sense of Los Angeles crime? Like, do you have a police scanner? Do you comb the newspaper every day looking for like murder stories to? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, do you pay no, attention? No, I don't to do that. Although, don't. I although I'm trying to get in touch with the police officer because at some point you have to just talk to police officer. <laughs> That's just something you need to do. Yeah, I think uh, they'll have stories. I think my dad knows a retired police officer. So I'm going to talk to him. Um, but yeah, I haven't. No, I haven't gone deep into the disgusting news archives of all the things that happened in LA. Although somebody uh, posted on my wall the other day that it's timeline now, whatever, uh, Facebook. Right. Uh, There was a woman who found her neighbor's like decomposing body in the trunk of her car. And and wait, in her trunk or in the neighbor's trunk? In her trunk. Okay. And um, my first book, kind of the whole story starts to... go crazy when she finds a body in the trunk of her car. So like, someone posted that on my wall. So. <laughs> Isn't it nice when people start posting murder it's stories? like, hey, <laughs> this murder reminded me of you. Right. <laughs> this decomposing body immediately brought you to mind. Um, wow. Okay. So your folks, are they are they pleased with you and your career choice? They must be proud of you since you're publishing these books. And They are. Um, and I think... I don't know. I don't even think they fully believed that I would ever be a lawyer. <laughs> I think they thought it was possible. <laughs> Although I am a lawyer. I, I will say I'm a licensed attorney. I do that as my day job. Yeah. I do that. We can talk about that later, but I do like only half the year. Um, so they, you know, it's, I think they're really proud of it. They're happy with the books and they are supportive and like tell their friends and, oh my God, the most embarrassing thing is my dad ordered <laughs> a license plate frame that says in Comic Sans. I read Steph Chaw's Follow Her Home, and I was like, no, you can't. Oh, my God. This <laughs> like, comic sans. This is, like, so sweet, but it's so embarrassing. <laughs> How do I tell you, like, to just hide that forever? Oh, my God. No, I like it. you got to just let it go. you got to let it go. It's so great. I love your dad. Um, did you ever, I mean, all this uh, achievement, you know, like, from childhood onward, did you ever have, like, a, a crazy period? Did you ever go nuts a little bit or no? 
No, I never did. It's still, it's yet to come. Something to look forward to. Yeah, maybe I'll, maybe I'll snap. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, I think I'm a very level-headed, boring person. I think the most interesting thing about me by far is that I write novels. Um, And, you know, you meet writers who have, like, so many other things going on and just, like, so interesting and complicated. I'm not... I think you're interesting. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's like... I feel like my whole life has been like I studied, I went to school, and then I wrote this book, and like here I am. I got a basset hound. That's like the most interesting thing about. What me. is your basset hound's name? His name is Duke. Duke. Okay. He's he's wonderful. <laughs> Why a basset hound? My husband really wanted a basset hound since he was a kid. Okay. Just the ears and the droopiness, and I I was not even a dog person until we got the dog, and now I'm just like yeah full on basset lady. There you go. Yeah, you gonna ha- are you gonna have kids? Do you know? Yeah, I think so. In like a few years, that Basset Hound will take us a back seat quickly. That's what I've heard. It's crazy. I've heard our that. Do- my dog Walter used to be like the center of our world, and then we had a child, and we're like, "Did you feed him? How, how old is your kid? <laughs> uh, four. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I mean, you know, some people maybe it's to greater and lesser extents, but you have a child, and all of a sudden that takes up so much of your time. A lot of the energy that you used to focus on your dog then appropriately shifts to your child yeah no i've heard i i I forget who told me this but he said like i was talking about we'd heard of a dog that came into our rescue organization because um the they had a baby and the baby just started breaking out in hives it's like very allergic to the dog and i was just joking around with friends and i was just like you know like duke was here first like we could like give the baby away (laughs) and that would just be fair and my friend who had a kid was just like you would be you will be so shocked at how fast your loyalties change yes they do they do you know and uh i guess that's appropriate it makes sense yeah you can't i mean there's just not enough energy to go around so yeah duke should enjoy it while it lasts and you know it's and it's true and like the dog if you want to be away from the dog you can like put it in a cage and leave yes can't do that with the child you can't (laughs) oh shit um so okay so what about the future like do you have like have you planned your future or is it one day at a time for you do you have like a sense of where you want to be artistically and you know, do you want to be writing uh, detective novels and having them turned into movies and have like an Elmore Leonard career? Do you want to shift to literary fiction at some point? I have goals. Um, I don't know how many of them are realistic. My main goal is that at some point in my life, I can like quit my day job uh, and still not just be a housewife with a hobby. You know, I, yeah. I, like, I like it's important to me that I contribute to our household finances and like, you know, am could be self-sufficient sure um and so yeah i'd like to in like 10 to 15 years be able to do some combination of writing novels and writing essays or reviews i, I do book reviews and i do food reviews too so i don't you review food like yeah. restaurant, restaurant yeah or? i do uh i do like uh restaurant roundups and reports for the la times food section what's good where should i be eating oh my god like that could be like a whole other show right <laughs> <laughs> i mean in la korean food thai food and mexican food are the ones that are, are the genres that i recommend to people from out of town but there's just so much good stuff it's a great food scene it i is. actually i it's, i like the food scene in la better than the food scene in new york or sf because like who cares if you have like a three-star michelin restaurant like are you gonna eat there every day no right like you're gonna eat there never you once every time you get married you know something like that right so yeah i I, I love Los Angeles here. has great food. Oh, yeah. 
You know, a lot of restaurants, the food truck thing originated here. Yeah. You know, we have some good experimental stuff happening. And I, I like, and I found too, like I'll, I'll be traveling someplace and I'll, I'll, my wife and I'll say like, oh, I miss the food in Los Angeles. Oh yeah. You know? No, there's so it's much so stuff. Bad. Yeah. Oh, it's so great. I, I Yelp. That's actually how I got both the book reviewing and the food reviewing gigs. You're a Yelper. Yeah. I so have... you actually, like when you go someplace, you immediately go home and Yelp it? No, I have like a two-month backlog. Oh, you do? Because okay. <laughs> I Yelp every place I go to. I would Yelp your house if it had an, a Yelp account. Don't Yelp me, please. <laughs> Don't no, I mean, that. it's like, it's it's pathological at this point. I have Yelped every place I've been to since 2008. Why? Because I'm a crazy person. I don't know. It started because it was really fun to, and I like writing. I think it makes sense because I like writing and I like food. And it's really easy for me to write about a restaurant. It's the easiest thing in the world. It just comes out. So it's actually a good writing exercise. I do it every day. I'm basically. glad that you know what I'm like. I say like with some mystery, like why, why do you yelp? How can you? But I'm glad that you do. I have over 2,000 reviews. Holy. <laughs> and so that's what you pointed to when you got the food reviewing gig? No. Uh, what happened was that uh, I met Jonathan Gold when he was when he was judging a Korean barbecue com- uh, uh, competition. And I just went up to him afterwards. I had this like restaurant that i'd been to that a lot of people didn't know about and jonathan gold is like the what he won the pulitzer prize yeah for food. and he's the la times yeah restaurant critic one of one of them uh the other one yeah is s irene but he he ended up going to this restaurant i recommended and then i think he found my yelp account and so he he's told me anyway and apparently has told other people that i'm the best person on yelp which is good endorsement i should get Whoa. that on I i'm should... gonna go check how do i check out your yelp <laughs> I did. You just like go to any restaurant in LA with any kind of profile and look for the person with a koala hat. Stuff C. <laughs> you have a koala hat? Yeah, in my picture I have a koala hat. Like a like a baseball hat? It's like a no, it's like a beanie, but it's like the shape of the top of a koala's head. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I'm eating an ice cream cone. All right. Um but yeah, so Jonathan Gold tapped me to be a restaurant scout. He has like this team Everyone else is, like, a food blogger of, like, decent stature, and I'm, like, a <laughs> plebe yelper. Well, that's, uh, <laughs> that's the way you got to start somewhere. Pretty yeah. soon you'll be the uh, you'll be winning the Pulitzer Prize. Yes. So um, you got to give a recommendation. What's your favorite restaurant? Where do you go? Like, give me, like, a restaurant that's a go-to restaurant for you. Okay, Soban. S-O-B-A-N. That's okay. my favorite Korean restaurant. Where is that? It's on Olympic, and that's the one I told Jonathan Gold about. Okay. Uh, and did he like it? He must have liked yeah. it. Yeah. It's on like the 101 essential LA restaurants and everything now. Oh, it's wow. it's on Olympic and Wilton. This is like LA talk, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, people... it's really good. They're known for their raw marinated crab, which is like it's not a food that you see too many places. I don't think too many cultures do raw crab, but it's delicious. It's like very gelatinous. You like bite onto the shell and you suck out all the meat. And there's like the goopy crab roe, and it's oh, it's divine. So bon. Yeah. Okay. What, and that's just Korean barbecue, or is it Korean? No, it's like home-style Korean food. Home-style Korean food. Although fancier than you would do at home. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I mean, do you have ambitions, though? To like, I mean, obviously you like to write about food, but is, is that part of your... I mean, I get that would be an interesting career. You're like a writing noir fiction. Do you want to write literary fiction at any point? Actually, yeah. So, when I, food writing was never part of the plan. It was a hobby. Okay. It was just something I was doing for fun. Uh I think I'm decent at it, but it's not. It was never my ambition to be a food critic. What What makes someone a good food writer? The, the ability to describe the food. Yeah, and, the, and make it sound delicious. Yeah. And 
I think, uh, I don't know, paying attention to things. I, I actually don't have a very developed palate. It's not, I don't have like a very sensitive palate, I should say. So maybe yeah. I'm not the best person for that kind of thing, but um, I can write about food and make you want to eat it. Uh, did you yelp the Hooters in Switzerland? I did not because it was in Switzerland. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, anywhere, it. It's actually a relief for me when I travel places that don't have Yelp because I'm like, oh, I can just eat. I don't have to. Like Yelping is part part fun and part chore because now I feel like I'm just tied to it because I've been doing it for so long. I can't just like throw it in the toilet. Yeah. I have, You know, it's like hundreds of thousands of words that I've written. I think like I, I counted two years ago and it was 400,000 words. So <laughs> it's like by far my largest body of work but yeah it was just it's just for fun and um in the future i would like to you know if if something happens i'm not going to say no but i I think so many people really want to do it that i feel like that's probably not in the cards for me it's like travel writing everybody like yeah be one of those people who gets to go on vacation and write about it yeah people want to go out out and eat for free and write about it exactly i don't think i'm going to be the the person who like is not striving and just like gets handed like a food critic job at somewhere that pays well, you know? So it's like, uh, I'd, I'd, ra- I'd rather devote my energy to my fiction writing. And, um, I do want to transition, transition into literary fiction at some point. Oh, you do? Yeah. I actually, that, uh, I have those ambitions and I think it's because I read mostly literary fiction. I read some mystery, um, and the mystery I read tends to have some kind of literary bent because, you know, sentences matter to me as a reader and as a writer. And I like, I, I, I don't know. I don't feel like I have to be tied to having a murder in every book. Um, it's, I think it's not that easy to transition, so we'll see what happens. But You mean like transition and still have a readership? I mean, you're really... Yeah, readers, or like even sell a book to a publishing house. Um, but I think... Maybe it could know. be like a literary novel with a crime in it and like a food truck. There, yes. It would be perfect. <laughs> a yelping That sounds protag- very L.A., actually. <laughs> right. yeah, I, th- uh, there are literary writers who dip into crime fiction, and everyone loves that. Um, but it's I think it's harder to go the other way. Uh, like yeah, Michael Shaben Michael and yeah, Kazuo have done crime novels. Actually, Jonathan Lethem started as doing crime, and then he... And now he's like Fortress of Solitude. And, right, right, right. Yeah, he can kind of do it. He can kind of do it all. Yeah, but you know there aren't that many Jonathan Lethems. Well, maybe you could be the next. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. I'd like that would be cool. Yeah, well, um, but I, I want to write about Korean Americans in LA, and there are many ways to do that. And you think that's going to be your milieu? Like you're going to stick with that? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think every character is ever going to be. I, I don't think I'm ever going to have a book where everyone's Korean, but. I think there are few enough people doing that that, you know, I'm not going to, like, cross over and suddenly write about white people. There are plenty of people who do you that already. You could include, like, a pasty white podcaster in one of your books. <laughs> I could do that. Yeah. I do have pasty white people in the books. You know, they're just, like, part of the landscape. But, you know, I'll have, like... He was afraid of the sun. <laughs> My first book has a white male sidekick, you yeah. know? So it's, like... That's what you should do, just to get back at... Uh, um... God, Chandler, you could be like, there's a white guy smoking pot in his car <laughs> instead of the Native American. Um, well, it's been so fun talking with you. Yeah. I appreciate you coming no, over. Thank you for having me on. This is really cool. Well, yeah. And congrats on the books. Best of luck with everything. I'm going to go look up your Yelp as soon as you leave. I hope you <laughs> okay. realize this. The koala hat. Uh, for those of you listening, go it's look Steph at Steph C. Steph C. On Yelp. All right, Steph. Thank you. <laughs> right, thanks. All right, there you go. That's it. That's Steph Cha. Her book is called Beware, Beware. It's available now from Minotaur. Please pick up a copy. 
and read that copy. You can find Steph online. Her web address is stephcha.wordpress.com. Her Twitter handle is at StephYCha, and uh, she's also on Yelp. She's a prolific Yelper, so follow her on Yelp. She'll tell you what to like. Uh, thank you to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget to go get the app. This program has its own app. The app is free. It's available wherever apps are available. It's the best way to listen. You get the app on your device. The most recent 50 episodes are available free of charge. And then if you want to stream the full archives, if you want access to all 300 and something episodes, you just sign up for a, a premium account right there within the app. It's very cheap. It's very easy to do. And I would certainly appreciate it. If you want to send an email, the address is letters at other PPL.com. I love hearing from you guys. As I mentioned at the top of the show, feel free to write to me and let me know what you think. I'm sorry for being too elliptical in the previous monologue, episode 318. It's tough stuff to talk about. Sensitive. I get uh, I get uh, concerned, or I get uh, a little anxious trying to talk about something that has legal ramifications when I don't know exactly what everything means or how it's all, what all you know, how all the facts stack up. What I can tell you is that uh, men behaving badly, without question, in all three instances. And I think uh, at least two of the three men would agree. I can't speak for Ed. I don't know. See, now now I sound like it. Well, no, no, you're agreeing with Steven. And St no, I'm not. I'm just saying they both have come out and said they feel like they recognize that they were not behaving well. It's very fraught. I almost just slid down. Do you see that? I almost got sucked into a dark hole. Oh, see, and that now I just said dark hole. What does that mean? I'm telling you, man, it's a minefield. Please remember that uh, Tolstoy was abusive to his servants and that Pablo Neruda died of leukemia. That's it for now. I'm just going to stop talking. Thank you to uh, Steph Cha for being a guest on this program. She was lovely. Go get her book. And uh, thanks to you guys for listening as always. I really appreciate it. I will be, I will be back uh, on Sunday with another episode, another conversation, another writerly type human being. And hopefully in my monologue, I will be talking about something very positive. <laughs>